pictures of God. Have you ever wondered just what does God look like? For centuries, yes, and even for millennia, men and women have been looking, looking for pictures of God. The collective imaginations of countless of worshippers across the years have left us with no shortage of ideas. From wood and stone carvings to beautiful and ornate oil paintings to elegant stained glass images, many artists have tried to capture the essence of the deity in something that we can see with our own eyes. Others mock the existence of a deity that they cannot see. Some turn to science, probing the depths of the microscopic world, or reaching out into the deep recesses of space, or studying the layers of the rocks, or the huge diversity of the animal kingdom, in search for some secrets of our origins. Now, of course, the scriptures that you hold in your hands teach definitely the existence of God. And although nowhere in the Bible do I find a photograph of him, although we cannot see him, we can see his fingerprints everywhere. In the natural world, we see beauty every day that surpasses the skill of the most talented artist or painter. We see delicate, intricate, interconnected systems that support our life the life of the plants and the animals that bring us warmth and food and fill our world with beauty and music. Yes, we can see in nature maybe not a picture of God himself, but a picture of his character, of who he is in the things that he has made. But it's an imperfect picture. Yet when we open the Bible, his written word, it tells us even more particularly of God. And yes, of course, God warns us in his Ten Commandments against making any kind of visible portrayal of God. That is, we shouldn't try to compare God to anything that we can physically see with our eyes, because sooner or later we will find ourselves worshipping that thing rather than worshipping the God who is greater than anything. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the, under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. That is what we read in the Ten Commandments. And so when we're looking for pictures of God and we wonder why can we not see him, I think we find the key there in the Ten Commandments. But have you ever wondered, if you could just see a picture of God, what would he look like? Turn with me in your Bibles to a familiar story. And we'll spend a few minutes today, this afternoon, just going through that story to see if perhaps we can't find some pictures of God. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and starting in verse 1. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Moses, Moses, the man of God, 
the man God had chosen to lead Israel into the land of Canaan. Yes, Moses knew who he was. He had even attempted once to carry out his mission as the crown prince of Pharaoh. He had heard his calling. And as Hebrews says, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He recognized, even though he was being raised by the daughter of Pharaoh, he recognized his identity as one of the children of Israel, as the the one God had chosen to lead Israel from captivity. And so he went out and in a rage of passion slew an Egyptian. The word got out. And unlike his expectations, his, his countrymen did not rally around him and support him and as the leader of this insurrection. And instead, Moses himself fled for his life into the wilderness and eventually married this daughter of Jethro. And for the next 40 years of his life, did nothing but tend sheep. For 40 years. Now it was this as if he had nearly forgotten. At 80 years of age, he was content to live out the rest of his life, tending a herd of sheep that he didn't even own. And as he was wandering out in the desert, he comes to this place that would change his life forever. He sees in this place not just a picture of God, but he has a very real and personal encounter with the God of the universe. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, is this place called the mountain of God here because it was already known as the mountain of God? I don't know. I don't believe so. But I believe that Moses, looking back in time as he was writing the book of Exodus, knowing everything that had taken place, identifies this place as the mountain of God because here Moses had had this encounter. And in future years, in the very short future, not only Moses, but the entire nation of Israel would have this incredible encounter with God here at Mount Sinai. And in verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord. You know, the Bible uses this term, the angel of the Lord, many times. And sometimes it can be a little bit confusing. But as we will see from the context, this is a very specific reference, not just to an angel, but actually to God himself. If you notice in your Bible, if it's, if it is like my Bible, the word Lord here is in all capital letters. Is it in all capital letters in your Bible? In verse two? Lord. Okay. I see some nodding. The word that is translated as Lord in all capital letters in our English Bibles is actually the proper name for God. Yahweh. We don't actually know how it is pronounced because the Jewish scholars, when they would copy down the word of God, would only copy down the four consonants, something like Y-H-W-H in our alphabet. But we can pronounce it Yahweh. Others pronounce it Jehovah. It's the same word, but it's the proper name of God, the angel of Jehovah. And the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah, appeared to him in a flame of fire 
in the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So Moses was going about his business. He was tending the flocks. He was tending the sheep. And he encounters a strange and wonderful sight. At first, he doesn't realize what it is. He he sees this bush and it's burning. And that in and of itself may not have been so extraordinary. In, in that dry and arid climate that, that he was in, um, I imagine perhaps something like a tumbleweed or, or some kind of shrub, a desert shrub. And Allah would take a, a little spark of lightning, uh, Perhaps even just an, some embers from a, from a, someone's cooking fire could have caught in this bush and caught a bush on fire. So he has seen fire before in the wilderness. But the thing that strikes his attention as he's watching this bush going up in flames, it's not consumed. It's not burned up. It just continues to burn. And he realizes as he's watching that bush there that this is no ordinary fire. And he turns aside to see why is this bush burning, but it's not burned up. You know, fire seems to be a recurring theme in the Bible as a representation of the presence, a manifestation of the presence of God. Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.29 refer to God. It says that God is a consuming fire. Later on, God would lead Israel in his visible presence, not just through Moses, but his visible presence as a pillar of cloud by day and what by night? A pillar of fire by night. And in the tabernacle, this special tent that the children of Israel would build for the worship of God, God kindled a very special and holy fire there on the altar. It was a symbol of his very real presence there in the midst of the children of Israel. Turn over to the New Testament and you find on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descending upon the disciples. And how was the Spirit visibly manifested? The only time we see, uh, besides Jesus' baptism, very few times, the only time we see the visible manifestation of the Spirit, what do we see? Cloven tongues of fire coming down on the heads of the disciples. So here Moses sees this bush burning but it's not burned up. You know, I wonder, just thinking about us today, are we not, as Christians, representatives of God in this world? And we, we are, as the disciples, as it were, on fire for God. Now, you know, in this world today, we see many people, old and young, people of different walks of life, who are burning with fire of passion for a cause, whether that be the cause of LGBT rights, or whether that be the cause of a labor union, or whether that be the cause of, and there's causes on, on every side. And we as Christians are burning for a cause. But is it possible that the fire of our zeal can be different, not so much in its intensity, but in the fact that as others look into our lives, our lives are not consumed by the fire, but rather through thick and thin, through prosperity or through adversity, the world can see at us 
a fire not of human origin, like the fire that burned in that bush, something supernatural, and can turn aside and see not us, a humble bush, but the fire that burns in us as a manifestation of God. Going on to verse 4. And then, and when the Lord saw that he, Moses, turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. You know, it's fascinating that God does not confront Moses head on. He does not, like, like Balaam, stand in the way and make Moses stop and acknowledge his presence. No. He manifests his presence, as it were, a little ways out of the way. Moses had to turn aside to see this sight. He positions himself where Moses will recognize his presence and then calls out to him, visibly and then audibly, Moses, I'm here. What will you do? Had Moses had his head down? Or maybe if he was texting along with his cell phone, maybe he would have walked right on by that burning bush and never even seen it. Who knows? The course of history may be different. And I wonder how many times have you or I been in the very presence of God, but God does not force his presence upon us. How many times perhaps have we been in the very presence of God and walked right on by because we were too busy. Because we didn't take time to notice and acknowledge that yes, God is here, but we missed it. But Moses does not miss this manifestation of God. He he sees and he hears. And he says, here I am. In verse 5, then God, he, then he said, do not draw near this place. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Let's stop right here and look at this picture of God. A God who transcends everything upon the earth. A God who created the world with the breath of his mouth, and yet who stoops to enter into a lowly bush who stoops to enter into relationship with you and with me, not one who forces himself into our presence, but who calls us to recognize his presence. And yet, when we recognize his presence, you know, I think too often we mistake meekness with weakness. And we, because God does not force himself upon us, because he allows us to choose whether or not to acknowledge him. Because of his grace and because of his mercy, too often I think we, we think of God as, as weak or, or, or inept or incapable. Oh, maybe not literally. We don't literally think that. But, but in the back of our minds, we have this idea that it doesn't really matter what we do in God's presence. But when Moses acknowledges the presence of God, God says, stop and take off your shoes. The place where you're standing is holy ground. 
I wonder how many times do we think that God is just imaginary? Or maybe we just think he doesn't even care how we behave. You know, I think it's a very dangerous thinking. When you read the Bible, and when you just look in the, at the world around us, and you realize how big God is, and how small and insignificant you are, take off your shoes. Recognize his power and awesome majesty and enter his presence with reverence and awe. You know, in other countries, when we come into church, not here, but in other countries, you will see by the door every shoe of every person in that church. You don't come through the door without taking off your shoes. How shamefully disrespectful it would be to wear your shoes into God's presence. Now, I don't believe that's the, that's the takeaway from this passage. We don't find it irreverent to wear our shoes in the church. Perhaps it would be irreverent to take them off. I don't know. But how do we treat God's church? God's sanctuary? Are we in God's house? Is this God's church? Do we believe he is here with us? then how do we speak and how do we act and how do we think in his presence? And I know it's hard in a, in a small church. Sometimes it's easy to come in here and, and think that this is just like our living room and we can, we can talk and converse. And I, I love having a warm and friendly church. And I don't think that we should be anything other than that. But as we enter into God's presence... Let us always keep in mind and in heart that we are in his house and who he represents, who he is. And verse 6, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. A picture of God. Do you want to see him? Many people have wanted to see him. And yet every time a prophet of God actually encounters God, he hides his face. The prophet Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Jacob, when he wrestled with the angel, trembled in fear. And yet, and yet, when he realized who it was that he was wrestling with, he was amazed that he had seen God and didn't die. Moses realizes now that he stands in the presence of the transcendent God, the one who knows the end from the beginning. He realizes that God is greater than he had ever imagined. But now God begins to speak. And Moses begins to recognize something even more amazing. Perhaps more amazing than the transcendence of God is his imminence, his imminent presence. How close God has been to his oppressed, stricken people. Look at the action words in these next few verses. Verse 7. 
And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. Have seen the oppression and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land flowing, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, therefore, behold, the cry of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to the Pharaoh, that you may bring my people and the children of Israel out of Egypt. Notice the message of God. Notice his imminence. Notice how much he has been involved with the children of Israel. Though they see him not, though they're, they're in bondage and slavery in Egypt, they're crying out to God, and it is as if God does not hear them. And yet God says here to Moses, I have seen, I have heard, I know their sorrows. I've come to deliver them, to bring them to a good land. Friends, how often have we cried out to God? Not just once, not just twice, but time and time and time again. And it seems as if God has not heard. Friends, read this passage and know that God has seen, God has heard. He knows and he is coming to deliver and to bring us into a better land. Moses' heart must have filled with joy. Here, finally, at long last, at the end of his life, he was seeing and hearing of the deliverance that God was going to bring to his people, that he'd, he'd longed for seeing this all of his life. Oh, yes, God is going to bring deliverance to Israel. Until it gets down to verse 10. And his joy turns to abject terror. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh. Me? What? Oh, no, no, no there's, there's been some mistake here. Me? Me? God would use me to deliver the children of Israel? No longer, unlike it was 40 years before when he went out and slew the Egyptian. This time Moses realizes who he is. You see, friends, when you come into the presence of God, when you see a picture of God, you see a picture also of who you are. And your life shrinks into insignificance before the manifestation of your Creator. But Lord, I, I've already tried that. I've already been there. I've, and I've been here for 40 years since, fleeing for my life. But Moses said to God in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He says, Who am I? He makes his objection, but God replies in verse 12, and he said, I will certainly be with you. It's as if God is saying to Moses, It's not you. You're just my instrument. I will be with you. I'm the one who's going to deliver Israel. I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You're going to bring Israel out and come right back to this very place at Mount Sinai. 
And then Moses makes his second objection. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What shall I say to them? Who are you? What is your name? How can I describe to the children of Israel this indescribable encounter that I'm having now with you here in this burning bush? What shall I say to him? What, by what authority am I doing this? And here, my friends, God gives to Moses. And through the scriptures, he gives to you and me. Perhaps one of the most beautiful descriptions. One of the most beautiful pictures of who he is. He says simply, I am. Verse 14. Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, how do we describe, how do we understand this this phrase, this word, I am? Now, in, in my English up language, in my, in my upbringing, I always learn to use these sentence, this type of sentence with a, a direct, they call it a direct object, right? Maybe that's a predicate nominative. Anyway, but you, you have to have another word after the, the am. I am what? I, I am what? I am, period. Full stop. I am has sent me to you. I am denotes God's self-existence. He has no beginning. He has no end. He exists in the present. He exists in the past. And he exists in the future. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Before there was a beginning, I was there. After the end of everything, I will still be there forever and all eternity. I know the end from the beginning. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Think of the very biggest thing that you can think of. I'm bigger than that. Think of the very longest stretch of time. I was there before it. I'll be there after it. I am, and there is no other. The I am denotes the transcendence of God above every earthly thing. But here's the beautiful thing about this description. Because if you turn to Matthew 28 and verse 20, Jesus says after commissioning his disciples, Lo, I am, notice those words again, Lo, I am with you Always, even to the end of the age. Not only does the I am indicate the transcendence of God, but it teaches us his his eminence. I am with you for all of eternity. From ages past to ages to come, and now in the present, I am always with you. And this is the message that he gives to Moses here. 
I am has sent me to you. I, in other words, I am with you. It's not Moses that's going into the presence of Pharaoh. It is God. It's not Moses who's leading the children of Israel from Egypt to land, to the land of Canaan. It is God. And before Moses entered this world, God was there. And since Moses' death, God is still there to this very day. In this one name, you have a picture of God. A picture not, not of what he looks like physically, but of who he is. Because that is exactly who he is. He simply is. He says, I am. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. And yes, this story continues. Moses has more objections. But I want us to conclude the story right here for today. I want to conclude with this one thought and ask you this one question. Who is God to you? What is your picture of God? Because how you answer that question determines just about everything else in your life. We have many, many, many pictures of God in our world today. Yes, we have the stained glass paintings, but, but more than that, we have in each of our hearts a picture of God that was put there perhaps by our parents, perhaps by our upbringing, perhaps by the environment in which we live, or the things that we've always heard about who God is. Friends, what is your picture of God? Is it a true picture of God? If you were today to encounter God in a burning bush like Moses did, would you recognize him? Would he challenge those assumptions that you have about him? I I want to repeat and stress, how many times is it possible that we have been right in the presence of God and failed to recognize him? When you come into God's presence, do you take a moment to stand in awe of Him? To take off your shoes, as it were, and listen to what He has to say? Have you seen Him answer the cries of your heart? Do you have faith that He knows your your every need? Is he the I am of your life today? The beginning, the end, and everything in between. My friends, I just ask you, and if he were to say to you, as he says to Moses, I'm sending you, I'm sending you to be my hands and my feet, Will you follow him? Because he says, I am with you 
always, even to the end of the world? Who is he to you? And what is your picture of God? Lord, you've shown us today a little glimpse of who you are. Help us as we enter into your presence to enter in with awe and wonder. And as we leave this place, may we keep you ever in our hearts, remembering your promise, for I am with you always, even to the end of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.